All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll, we'll look at uh, this fascinating text today in, in Revelation chapter 1. Lord, we, we just come to you today, and uh, Lord, we study just what your name means, Lord, the, the, the name Jesus. And I just ask today that, that our eyes are opened and that we have a new vision. That's the purpose of the book of Revelation, Lord. That's why you've given it that name, to give us a vision, a revelation of just who you are in Jesus Christ. And Lord, it's not anywhere clearer in the Bible than it is in these few texts that we're going to be looking at today. So I just ask today that, that, uh, that you just help us to see you in a fresh and new way. And Lord, get excited about the future that we have because of what you've done for us on the cross. We just, we just, we just don't have any idea, Lord, of, of that, what that future is. But you're going to give us a glimpse of it today as as we look at this text. And we're so grateful to you. We're so grateful, Father, that you sent your only begotten Son uh, to die for our sins. And so, uh, Lord, just show us who your Son is today as we, as we look at this great text in Revelation chapter 1. I just ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. I'm sure everybody in this room has heard the old colloquial question, what's in a name? In other words, is there any meaning in a person's name? Well, my name is a beautiful name. George. Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful name? No, it's actually not that beautiful. I would change it if I could. I, I, when I was growing up, I, heard, I often heard Georgie Porgy pudding and pie, you know. I'm not going to say the rest of that, but uh, they, they really mocked my name when I was growing up. And... and most of us don't even know what our name means. Now, I know what my name means. It means farmer. Now, what am I doing here if I'm supposed to be a farmer? I, I, uh, I, if, you've ever seen me, if you'd ever seen me guard, you'd know that that's not an appropriate name for me. I, I, can't, I can't even make a little bitty box garden work, so I certainly couldn't be a farmer. But maybe there is some spiritual uh, meaning there in that I'm sowing seeds here today, so maybe I do have the appropriate name. How many of you know the meaning of your first name? See, about half of people in this room don't even know what their first name means. You might want to check it out. It might have some implications as to, as to who you are. Most of the time it doesn't. But in the Bible, names always have meaning. They always have purpose. Uh, and sometimes they're prophetic. You look at the name of Abraham. What's the name of Abraham? I mean, Abram is the Hebrew word for Abram, is the Hebrew word for, for father. And uh, Im is the Hebrew word for nations, or Yom. So Abram Yom, Abram Yom is, the, is the Hebrew. So Abraham means what? The father of nations. It, it couldn't be a better name for him because he became the father of nations. Not only the, the nation of Israel and but, but he became the father of all the peoples of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, you know, his name is very important. David, David's name means beloved. I mean, can you think of a, we got a lot of Davids in here. It means beloved in the Hebrew. I mean, can you think of a better name for, the, for, the, for King David than beloved? I mean, wasn't he beloved of God probably as much as any man who's ever lived? Because why was he beloved? Because he had a heart for God. He was a man after God's own heart. And so he was beloved. And uh, so his name uh, has great meaning. I love the name Jabez. 
what a great name to name your kids, any of you who have babies. Name your kid Jabez. You know what Jabez means? It means pain. And his mother named him Jabez because it caused her great pain to bring him into this world. Mothers, can you relate to that? So his name was Jabez. But I love that little prayer of Jabez. Jabez prays to the Lord and he says, Lord, keep me from evil so that I don't cause pain. Or don't cause, really literally in the Hebrew, I don't cause Jabez. I don't cause pain. What a beautiful name he had. Sometimes, though, the biblical names have uh, a negative sense. Uh, they show the negative side of a person, like Jacob. We know the name Jacob. What does Jacob mean? Heel catcher, a deceiver, wheeler dealer. I mean, that was a perfect name for Jacob. Fit, fit him most of his life. In fact, it was so perfect that when he finally was changed by God there at Peniel after he had wrestled with God, God said, Jacob, you've got to have a new name. Because no longer are you a deceiver, you're Israel. You are, you are a prince with God. That's what that means, prince with God. No longer are you the deceiver, you're the prince with God. I always get a laugh out of the names uh, of uh, Naomi's uh, sons, uh, Chelon and Malon, which means puny and sickly. And uh, they lived up to that name. How did they live up to that name? By dying. They died at, at an early age in, in the land of Moab because they were sickly and puny and they, they couldn't make it. Uh, so, so their names had meaning. But no biblical name is so rich in meaning as the name Jesus. The name Yeshua. The name Joshua. And there are a lot of people who have that name. There's a lot of Joshua's in the world today. A lot of Jesus, is, that's the Greek name for Jesus. A lot of people take on that name, but nobody lives up to that name but Jesus. And what does that name mean? It means Jehovah is salvation. And that's what we're going to be looking at today as we come to Revelation chapter 1, the meaning of the name of Jesus. I mean, how can he be Jehovah? Jehovah is salvation. I mean, how can he fit that name? And, and uh, that's, uh, I believe, why we have the book of Revelation. The main purpose in the book of the Revelation is not for us to figure out who the Antichrist is. It's not for us to set a date on when Jesus is coming. The main purpose for us to study the book of Revelation is to figure out just who Jesus is. Because in the book of Revelation, like nowhere else, we see exactly who Jesus is. And so, uh, in this book of Revelation, in this apocalypsis, uh, which is the Greek word for revelation, uh, in this unveiling, uh, we get the first description of Jesus. If you look in chapter 1 of Revelation, we got that last week in verse number 4. Look what he says. John says, grace to you. I'm looking at the last part of that verse, chapter, chapter 1, verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. That's who Jesus is. Now, a lot of people would say that's a description of the Father. And I can understand why they say that because I believe in this context it is a description of the Father. And let me show you why, because 
when you come to verse 5, how does it begin? And from Jesus Christ. So it looks to me like John is saying uh, here that uh, uh, he is, grace is coming from him who is, who was, and who is to come, the Father, and from Jesus Christ. Now, so we have a little bit of a problem there. Who is it? Is it Jesus Christ, or is it the Father, or is it both? How can that be? Well, you've got to go back, and you've got to remember what Jesus told his disciples. You remember right the night before he died, Philip asked him, he said to him, he said, he said Lord, show us the Father. If you'll show us the Father, we'll be satisfied, and you can go on to the cross, and you can do your thing, and we'll wait on you, and everything will be fine. Just show us the Father. And Jesus was really disappointed in the fact that Philip asked him that question. He said, Philip, I mean, why are you asking me that? Have I been with you so long that you don't know that, that uh, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father because I and the Father are one. So that's how you reconcile this fact that you, you hear here in verse 4, uh, him who is and who was and who is to come, and now you jump down to verse number 8, and Jesus is speaking, and he says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come. The way you reconcile that, the only way you can reconcile that is to know that Jesus and the Father are one. And like I say, we don't get that any clearer than we do here in the book of Revelation. I don't want to bore you with Hebrew scholarship or Hebrew hermeneutics, but, but if you study the Psalms and you study the Proverbs and you study some other passages uh, in the Hebrew Bible, especially uh, in the wisdom literature, what they call the wisdom literature, then you have this thing called inclusios. And in an inclusio, you have a statement that's made, and then you have some information that kind of interprets that statement in the middle, and then the statement is made again. You follow what I'm saying? And that's what we have right here. Remember, we had, we, I showed you how he used parallelism last week. Well, he uses an inclusio right here because he says here in verse number 4, grace to you and peace from him who is, and, who is and who was and who is to come. And then he says it again down in verse number 8, the one who is and who was and who is to come. And everything in between that inclusio is meant there for you to be able to interpret what he's trying to tell you here. So it's very important that, that, uh, that we look at this material, and it's some really exciting stuff. Now, you're going to have to follow me here today, and you're going to have to, when I chase down some scripture, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to just read it to you. We're going to chase it down together because I want you to see these things for yourself as we go through this. But it's some really exciting stuff, and maybe some stuff you haven't seen before. If you'll hang with me, you'll, you'll, you'll see some, some really important things about Jesus Christ. But let's, let's begin in verse number 5. We left off with verse number 4, but let's listen to who is this Jesus? Who is this one who is and was and is to come? And listen to what he says in verse number 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Man, what a description of Jesus Christ right there. You see, four things that are revealed to us in this revelation, in this apocalypse about Jesus Christ, here just in this verse, listen, listen, look at those four things. 
He is the faithful witness, number one. He is the firstborn from the dead, number two. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth, number four. He is the one who has washed us of our sins by his own blood. I mean, that's number four. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth, number three. And number four, he is the one who has washed us of our sins by his own blood. Now, first of all, let's look at this. Look at, look at the first thing he tells us. He is the faithful witness. What is Jesus a witness to? Well, he's a witness of who God is, who God was, and who God is to come. That's what he witnesses to. And that's exactly or basically what the author of Hebrews tells us over in Hebrews chapter 1. So I want you to flip back with me to Hebrews chapter 1. That's just a few books back toward the beginning. You're in the end of the, the Bible, so go a few book, books back towards the beginning. And look down at Hebrews chapter 1. You want a book that will bring you great comfort and great revelation. Revelation's one of them, but the book of Hebrews is one too. We, it hasn't been too, too long ago since we went through the book of Hebrews. But the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is almost a revelation in itself. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ too. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ as our Savior. In the book of Revelation, we get the revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll talk a little bit about him being our Savior, but it's the revelation of Jesus Christ as who he is now and who he is to come as our coming king. And so, but in the book of Hebrews, if you want to know what Jesus did for you, go to the book of Hebrews and study that. And, and, and we're not going to do all of Hebrews today. We're just going to look at one verse. I don't want to scare you off here. But, but go to verse number one. Actually, we'll look at a couple of verses. He says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these days, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So the first thing that Jesus is a witness to is to the word of God. He is the word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So the first thing that he's a witness to is to the witness of the word of God. In other words, every word that he speaks is the word of God. And every word in this Bible, I got to tell you, it's been spoken by Jesus Christ. Now, it was spoken through men, but if you go over to 1 Peter, it, it, we're told that it was Jesus Christ who spoke through the prophets of old. And he spoke through Paul, and he spoke through all the rest of the, rest of the authors of the New Testament. And so he is the Word. And so we get a witness to God's Word when we listen to the Word of Jesus Christ. He goes on then, he says, whom... He has appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the worlds. Whoa. Jesus isn't just some man, he's our creator. He gives witness to God as the creator of the universe. Jesus is God the creator. And then he goes on and he says in verse number three, who being the brightness of the Father's glory and this express image of his person. In other words, he's the same guy. He's the same as the Father. And the upholding of all things by his word, by his power, when he had by himself, by himself, purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand is the, is the place of power, the place of power of God. Let me tell you what else Jesus is a witness to and what you get in that last part of, of verse number three there. You get a witness to the fact 
that God is love. God Almighty emptied himself of his glory and he came down to this earth as a little baby and grew up to die on a cross for your sin and my sin. That is love. That is unmerited favor. That is grace. Did we deserve that? Did we deserve for God to come down and die for us? No, but he did. I mean, nowhere else do we see the witness of God's love than we see that witness uh, in the cross. Now, go back with me to Revelation chapter number 5, and let's look at the second thing that uh, John reveals to us about Jesus Christ in in verse number 5. Secondly, he is the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. Does that mean he was the first person to be resurrected from the dead? You better think about that. Don't say yes, don't holler yes. No, it doesn't mean that. There were people resurrected from the dead in the Old Testament. There were people resurrected from the dead in the New Testament. Jesus resurrected people from the dead. So he wasn't the first to be resurrected from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead, but he wasn't the first to be resurrected from the dead. Let's look at how Paul, Paul uses this same phrase, and he gives us a little more insight as to to what this means for Jesus to be the firstborn over in Colossians. Go back with me towards the middle of the New Testament to Colossians. I'm already there. Colossians. Oh, you're a pastor. You're supposed to be there. You get to Colossians chapter 1 and look down at verse number 18. Man, some of you are still looking. I'm going to see who's last and make them stand up. So you better get there. Pretend you're there. Pretend you're there. Colossians chapter 1. Okay, Roy, stand up. <laughs> it was Diane was la- <laughs> All right, verse number 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why is he the head of the church? Because he's the beginning of the church. He's the firstborn of the dead. Those people that got raised from the dead Uh, in the Bible before Jesus died, what happened to them? They all died again. In fact, they got the worst deal in the world. You don't want to ever be raised from the dead. Once you're out of here, you don't want to come back and have to die again. they They got a really bad deal. But he was the beginning, the beginning of the church, the firstborn from the dead. And and it doesn't mean that he was the first to die, as I said earlier. What, What that firstborn is related to is the right of the firstborn heir. He is the firstborn child of God. He's the most important child of God, whether he's the firstborn or not. He's the most important child of God. And so he's the son of God. And and then Paul gives us that commentary that that in all things he may have preeminence. So what's it mean to be firstborn? That's the Greek word prototokos. It means to be preeminent. He's preeminent over the creation. He is preeminent over the church. He is head of the church. So he is the firstborn over the dead. Now go back to Revelation and look at the third thing that Paul tells us. And I love this one right here. I love this one right here. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now I want you to look for the tense there. There is no tense. There is no tense. And, that's, and there's no tense given on purpose because he is the ruler over 
over the kings of the earth. He was the ruler over the kings of the earth that have already gone, and he will be ruler over the kings of the earth. He's always been ruler over the kings of the earth. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. You don't have to go there because you've heard this several times and you know it. There is no authority except that authority that comes from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Kim Jong-un, that little midget fat dude. Man, he better be glad he's not around me when I have my gluck. I'd put him out. He'd be done. But that guy is nothing. I don't lose any sleep over Kim Jong-un. He can make all the threats he wants to make. God will drop him dead on the spot. Let me tell you something. He gets his breath from God. He was created by God. His heartbeat is given to him by God, and God can stop it just like that. And so if he starts slinging missiles over here in the United States, then God's allowing him to sling missiles over here in the United States for his purposes. And i got to back off and say, okay, Lord, the just shall live by faith, just like, like we learned in Habakkuk Wednesday night. I'm not going to worry about this guy. I'm not going to worry about anybody. I didn't worry about Barack Obama. I don't worry about Donald Trump. I don't worry about any of these people because they get their authority from God, and, and yeah, they can make choices, but God puts boundaries on their choices. And God is the one who allows them to do the things they do, and when he wants to stop it, he can stop it. Isn't that good news? He's the ruler over the kings of the earth. And he was the ruler, he is the ruler, and he's going to be the ruler. He's always going to be the ruler. And one day, here's the next thing you see. Well, we don't get that to verse 6. You've got to wait. Let's look at the last. Look, look at verse number 4. I mean, verse number 5 again. Let's look at the fourth thing. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood. Own, look, listen to this. In his own blood. Let me tell you something. That's very important. That wasn't the blood given to him through Mary and Joseph. That was his own blood. Do you understand what kind of blood that is? That's not any ordinary human blood. That is the very blood of God. And so when that crown of thorns was laid on his head and that blood dripped down his forehead, that was the blood of God coming down. When they flogged him like a dog until his blood was spurting out his back, that was the blood of God dripping down Jesus Christ. When they took those nails and they nailed him, his hands and feet to that cross and that blood spurted out, that was the very blood of God that was spilling on the ground. And when, and, and when they took the spear and they stuck him in the side and the water came out and the blood came out, that was the blood of God. Christ purchased the church with his own blood, Paul says. Theo Amatis, the blood of God. It wasn't any ordinary blood. It was the blood of God, the infinite blood of God. And that's why we sing that great song, There's Power in the Blood. There's power in the blood. Now, you might not believe that. I believe it. Because my ears have been tipped with that blood. My eyes have been tipped with that blood. My body's been tipped with that blood. And I've been made righteous by that blood that cleanses me from all unrighteousness. And I know it. And if you've been, if you've been saved, you know it. It's the blood that saves us. And if you don't like, you want to throw the blood out of your religion, you got no religion. 
The, the, our religion is based upon the blood of Jesus Christ. It's in his blood that we're made righteous. And we don't understand that. I can't explain that to you. All I know is that his blood was infinite. It had infinite power. It still has infinite power. His blood still cleanses me from all unrighteousness. You want to learn about the blood some more, go back, like I said, and study the book of Hebrews. We don't have time to do that, but there's nothing more important than his blood. And then look now at verse number 6, and here's what I was talking about earlier. He's, he, he, is, he will be the ruler of, 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 over the kings of this earth, and we will be kings and priests with him. Look at the next verse, verse number 6. And he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Man. Kings and priests. You know what Jude says? Jude says in the last part of Jude, and it's been a while since we, we've been there because we went back to First and Second Thessalonians, but remember what Jude said. He said he, that Jesus will return with ten thousands, not thousands, thousands of his saints, and we will come with him to rule and reign on this earth and to be priest unto God, to be priest to the people of the cities of this world, of the nations of this world. We will be kings over cities, kings over nations. Those of us that are serving the Lord now, we will serve him that way in the millennium. and In eternity, we'll serve him that way. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are ambassadors for Christ. We're ambassadors for Christ because he who... Uh, knew no sin was made sin for us so that we could have the righteousness of God in him. We've been changed. We've been perfected. And now we can be priests to, this, to the rest of this world. And if you think about that, we don't have to wait to the millennium. God has already placed us in this world to be his ambassadors now. Now, we're not kings yet, but we're certainly priests. We're priests unto God when we minister to God through our prayers and through our worship. We're priests unto God and we're priests unto the people that God surrounds us with in the place where he's placed us. And you should never lose sight of that fact. That God has you where he has you for a reason. He's placed you there for a reason and that's to serve as his priest. To practice what you're going to be doing in in the millennium, to practice what you're going to be doing in eternity. And then one day, God's going to sit you. If you're, if you're faithful in that little, God's going to give you something big. And you're going to be, in the millennium, you're going to have an important position in that kingdom. Chuck Smith said he's already got Hawaii, so I'm not going to get that. I'll probably get Homa, you know, something like that. But hopefully, hopefully you'll get somewhere like... Uh, Amsterdam, no, you don't go to, Amsterdam's got to be fixed, let me tell you before you go there. <laughs> but it will be. All of these places are going to be nice, and all the people are going to be good in, in, in when Jesus Christ comes to rule and reign on this earth. To him be the glory, look at this last part, and dominion forever and ever. You know one of the exciting things to me about the millennium? Is once we get to the millennium, and Jesus is placed on that throne, Four years from now, we're not going to have to worry if he's going to get reelected. Or eight years from now, if he's going to have to get reelected. His dominion is for how long? It will be forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. His dominion is forever. That's really good news. Because he is a righteous king. 
a just king. And righteousness and truth and justice will rule on this earth. Look at your news. Won't that be great when that time comes? Well, it's coming soon. The worst thing, get, look up, because your redemption draweth nigh. Then now, he says in verse, verse number 7, this is some really good stuff right here. Hang with me. Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him. How many eyes? Note that. Every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him will see him. He's not just talking about all the Jews. He's talking about the Romans. He's talking about the Jews in the first century. Every eye will see him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Because of what they did to him. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Even so, come quickly. Now, this is one of those references that we get from the Old Testament, or one of those passages we get from the Old Testament. And in Revelation, you don't get the exact quote. You actually get it reworded, paraphrased a little bit, and you get some additional information, so it makes it very interesting. But I want to go back to the reference where, uh, where this same word is spoken to us in the Old Testament. And I want to go to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, another great book to study along with the book of Revelation. We'll be heading there soon on Wednesday night. But but I want you to go to Zechariah. All you got to do is find the beginning of the New Testament and go back two books. Find the, the Italian prophet Malachi and then back up one book to Zechariah. I don't know what he is. I imagine he's a Jew. Go back to Zechariah, and I want you to look down at verse number 10. Chapter, well, you've got you to read my mind here. <laughs> Chapter 12, verse number 10. You ought to know that verse because we've been looking at that a bunch as we've gone through the various minor prophets because it all leads up to this point. They all, they all finish up about this, with this very verse in a different way, paraphrased in a different way, because this is what's going to happen in the end. Look at verse number 10. And I will pour out on the house of David, who is that? That's Israel. And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that's Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me. Now, I love that pronoun right there. Who's speaking here? Jehovah God is speaking. He says, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of the Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me, Jehovah God, whom they pierced. Who is Jesus? He is Jehovah God. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves, as a mother grieves for the loss of her firstborn child. Now, that is an absolutely amazing prophecy. 
Zechariah made that prophecy 2,500 years before, at least, it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't even happened yet. Before it happened. Some 25, I believe it's going to happen soon. I believe very soon the Lord is going to return. He made it 500 years that the one who is pierced, who's he speaking of? He's speaking of Jesus Christ who was pierced on the cross, whose hands and feet were pierced for our sins. That's who he's speaking of. And it happened 500, this prophecy was made 500 years before Jesus was actually crucified. Now, Paul speaks of the same events. Hold your place if you got one of these little ribbons, put it there in Zechariah chapter 12. And flip now to Romans. I want you to go to the book of Romans. Go back to the New Testament. The first part of the New Testament. You'll find a big old fat book there. Fat, full of great things. The book of Romans. And look at the book of Romans. And go to chapter number 11. And we get a little more insight into this event that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, look down at verse number 26. Hang with me now. If you, if you hang with me, keep your thinking cap on, you can see some really cool stuff right here. He says, and so all of Israel will be saved. What a statement. Tell that to the people who are teaching replacement theology out there. When he's talking about Israel here, he's talking about Israel. He's talking about the nation of Israel. And he says, all of Israel will be saved as it is written. When, when are they going to be saved? The deliverer will come out of Zion. He's going to come out of heaven. Jesus Christ is going to come out of heaven. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. In other words, he's going to pour out his spirit on the nation of Israel, on Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. And for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. Now, Israel doesn't get saved because, well, they, they go through the, the great tribulation and everything's really bad and, and all of a sudden they start reading their Bibles and they intellectually look at the Bible and they realize that Jesus was the Messiah. They, they still won't figure it out during the great tribulation. You go over there now, there's a spirit of blindness over their eyes, we are told in the Bible. So they're not going to see who Jesus is until God removes that blinder from their eyes. They're not going to be able to see it. But when they do, all of Israel will be saved. And, 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 and when does that happen? That happens when Jesus returns and he pours out his spirit on them and he takes away their sin. You can't be saved unless your sin is taken away. And these people are, you know, they're, they're, they're nice people and everything, but they're sinners just like everybody else. Don't think that Jews are saved without Jesus Christ. They're not saved without Jesus Christ. They have to have faith too, just like we have to have faith. And that's where the other extreme goes wrong, as if somehow you're an Israelite, you get saved. All of Israel will be saved. That whole remnant that's alive when Jesus Christ returns, they will be saved. When will they be saved? Let me tell you when they're going to be saved. Immediately, when, after Jesus, Jesus comes, and when does he come? Immediately after the battle of Armageddon. That's when he comes. Now, I want to go back to Zechariah now. Let me show you that. Look in Zechariah. Chapter 12. 
And let's go to the verse prior to the one we looked at a while ago, verse number 9, and listen to what it says. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now, what battle is he talking about there? He's talking about the battle of Armageddon. Then, after the battle of Armageddon, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn, and they will be saved. When does it happen? It happens after the battle of Armageddon. Let me show you another place. Verse chapter 14 of Zechariah. Hang right there. Or, or go there, hang in Zechariah, go to chapter 14, and look down at verse 3. And you see another picture of Armageddon here. It's in verse number 3. It says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of the battle, of battle, that, the battle of Armageddon. And in that day, watch this, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two, and he will pour out his spirit on Israel. They will look on the one whom they pierced, and all of Israel will be saved. Hallelujah, right? Now, two very interesting facts I want you to see about this passage right here in chapter 14 of Zechariah. First of all, it says that, he says, in verse number 4, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which faces Jerusalem on the east. Which means that when he enters Jerusalem, he's going to go through the eastern gate. To get you a picture on your iPhone, don't do it right now. I'll throw something at you. But get, when you leave here, get, get you a picture on your iPhone of the eastern gate of Jerusalem. It's all closed up. It's all closed up. In 1541, Suleiman, the Muslim leader of the Muslim Empire, came into Jerusalem, and one of the things he did was brick up, close up, the eastern gate. Some uh, expositors believe that he did that to prevent the Messiah from ever entering the eastern gate. Others believe that he did it just to mock the idea of the Messiah. And more than likely, I would lean towards that interpretation, that uh, he did it just to mock the idea of the Messiah ever entering the eastern gate. In other words, I'm going to pull, look at what I'm doing. Let your Messiah pull it down. I got news for you guys. If he can walk through walls to see the disciples or he can breathe and knock over the disciples, if he can create the entire universe, a little bitty brick wall is not going to keep him from entering Jerusalem. He's going to enter Jerusalem. So don't worry about the eastern wall being locked up. Don't, don't, don't take that as a prophecy that before Jesus can come, they got to remove the eastern wall. No, don't worry about that eastern wall at all. It's not going to stop him. There's something else that I want you to see right here. It says here in verse number 4 again, he says, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That doesn't seem so significant, but it's very significant. Let me explain to you why. As Jesus was being tortured by the Jews on the night before he died, and specifically by Caiaphas, the high priest, 
Caiaphas asked him, after they had beaten him in the face and put a, uh, a cloth over his head and, and, and asked him to prophesy who had hit him and, and he, was, he was bleeding there to that blood of God. Caiaphas asked him, he said, tell me, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus would never answer that question for the Jewish leadership before this time, but he answers it there. He says, it is as you say. He says, and I'm reading here from Matthew chapter 26, verse 64. He says, nevertheless, I say to you, I like this, this is like Clint Eastwood here, even worse. He says, I say to you, hereafter, one day after this, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. In other words, Caiaphas, I'm coming back. And I'm coming back as God Almighty. And I'm going to give you a front row seat for my return. You're going you're gonna to see me return. It's really interesting that on the cover of Biblical Archaeological Review in 1992, there's a large picture there on the cover of the ossuary or the tomb, or the coffin rather, of Caiaphas. They actually found that in 1990. And the article's a very interesting article. I still, I kept that magazine for sentimental purposes, but, but uh, it's a very interesting article. It shows how they found, discovered the ossuary, and then they, they translate the writings on the ossuary where the genealogy is given. He's named as the high priest. His father's Joseph, just like Caiaphas, his father's was. I mean, it fits the Bible perfectly. They dated the bones. They dated the ossuary. And they have absolutely no doubt that that ossuary is the uh, burial place, was the burial place of Caiaphas. Today, that ossuary, if you read the article, the very end of the article, kind of a matter-of-fact statement they make, but this is why I kept the article. At the end of the article, it says that... that, uh, the ossuary was placed in the Museum of Israel and Caiaphas' bones were buried on the Mount of Olives near the Eastern Gate. When I read that, I had just been reading this passage and I'd just been reading that passage, passage in Matthew chapter 26 and it gave me chills. It gave me chills. Well, wait a minute. How can Caiaphas... See the Lord if he's dead. Well, look back at Russ. Go back to Revelation now. Hang on to Zechariah. We're going to do one last verse in Zechariah. I'm going to show you in a minute. How will Caiaphas see the Lord coming back if he's dead? Well, look at Revelation chapter 7. It says every eye. What's every mean? Every. Every eye will see. Every eye on earth every eye on heaven, every eye in the grave, every eye in Hades, every eye, every eye that's ever existed is going to see the glory of the Lord when he returns. Here in the United States, if there's still a United States when he re- returns, we're going to see the glory of the Lord when he returns. 
You and I will be with him when he returns. We're going to see the glory of the Lord when he returns. Those who are in Hades, they're going to see the glory of the Lord when he returns. Because the glory of the Lord, as Isaiah said, his train fills the whole universe. And the only thing God has to do is open up those eyes and every eye will see the coming of the Lord. And so we're all going to see the coming of the Lord. And you know what's going to happen when we see the coming of the Lord? Let me tell you what Caiaphas is going to do. He's going to, he, he's going to say, uh-oh. My fanny's grass. I'm in deep trouble. I mean, I orchestrated the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. Those Romans who nailed him to the cross, they're going to see him coming in glory. And they're going to mourn. Uh-oh, what did I do? And those Jews who rejected him, they're going to see him coming, and, and they're going to mourn. Oh, no, what did we do? And this world, the United States, and this entire world that rejects him now, they're going to see him coming in glory. They're going to say, oh, no, what have we done? But you and I are going to mourn, too, because our sins, every bit as much as Caiaphas' sins, put him on that cross. And so we're all going to mourn. But for us, it's going to be bittersweet. Yes, it's going to be bitter because we're going to see those scars on his hands and his feet and in his side. And we're going to know that we put him there. But it's going to be sweet, sweet, sweet because the kingdom of God has come to this earth. And righteousness and truth will rule forever and we will rule and reign with him forever and we will live in his presence forever. What a day. So as John says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. For you're our creator. You're our God. And you're our Savior. And then you just let Jesus close it himself. Listen to what he says. In case you hadn't figured out who he is yet. He says, I, not let me, let me say this before I go any further. There are some Bibles that put this in, don't put this in red ink. Throw that Bible away when you get it. Because they're trying to, they're tr making an interpretation, they're trying to tell you, they're trying to tell you that Jesus is not God Almighty. He is God Almighty. And all you got to do, we'll get there later on, but you'll see Jesus later on saying these very words again later on in the first chapter, and it's clearly Jesus there. So if it's Jesus there, it's Jesus here. And listen to what he says. He says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, else should die. Almighty God, that's who I am. You had not figured it out yet. I and the Father are one. And the reason you could speak of the Father is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And then you can close it with Jesus as the one who is and who is, who, the one who is and who was and is to come. The reason you can do that is because he is the Almighty. Jesus and the Father are one. What's in a name? Everything. When it comes to Jesus. Everything's in that name. When Samson's parents, Manoah and his wife, encountered Jesus, they saw the angel of the Lord, none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus. Because there's only, 
one God in a body, and that's Jesus. And they saw him. They said, we've seen God, surely we're going to die. But as they got to know him a little bit and realized he wasn't going to kill them, they asked him, they said, they said, tell us your name. I mean, we want to know your name. You remember how Jesus answered him? He said, why do you ask me my name? Seeing it is wonderful. It is wonderful. Why is his name wonderful? Because he's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come. He is Almighty God. I want you to look at one last verse as we close. In Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. And it speaks of that day when the Lord rules and reigns in Jerusalem. And I want you to look down, Zechariah chapter 14, I want you to look down at verse number 9, and look what it says. And the Lord, who's the Lord? The great I am, what we sang about this morning, Jehovah God, the Lord shall be king on this earth, over all the earth. And in that day it shall be, the Lord is one. Everybody got that? The Lord is one, not three, he is one. And his name, one, will be one. What's the one name that he'll be called by? What's the name that's above all names? What's the name that, that's, that's wonderful? What name is that? It's the name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, Jehovah is salvation. What's in a name? Everything. Everything when it comes to the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word and just what a testimony to, to who you are. Just to ponder the fact that, that, Lord, that you would come to this earth, sent by the Father, to die for our sins so that we could live eternally with you, so that we could be kings and priests unto you. Father, there's so many people in this world that, that consider themselves Christians who don't understand who you are, and therefore they don't understand, Lord, the power of your blood and whose blood it was that was shed for us. Lord, I just ask today that there's a revival sent to every church in this country, to every person in this country, so that we just begin to get an understanding of who our coming King truly is that his name is wonderful, that he's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the one who was, the one who is to come, the one who is Almighty God. We thank you, Almighty God, Jesus Christ, for dying for us and giving us new life. Help us to see you in a fresh way, a tr have a true vision of just who you are. In Jesus Christ. It's in your precious name that I pray. Amen. Pray. Amen. Pray. Amen. Pray.